Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, as we uh, just prayed um, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, uh, we continue in that spirit of prayer. Um, Lord, you know apart from you, apart from your spirit, uh, we are blind to the things we most need to see, including the hope that we have in your gospel. And so now, Lord, we pray um, that whatever you want us to hear from your word, whatever Jesus, our shepherd, intends for us to hear, let us hear his voice. And please open our eyes, open our hearts, that we might be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so this morning, I'd like to talk about hope. It seems like... An important thing to talk about in this time. Uh, There's so many reasons we could talk about why we need to think about hope. We're in January, where every day seems gray and cold and dark. Uh, we're in this really weird time uh, where life doesn't feel anywhere close to being back to normal, where we're feeling cooped up and our, our kids are cooped up all because of the coronavirus. And then, and then the news, it just feels like every week the news just keeps hitting us over and over over again with things that are so discouraging. And there are times, that, at least for me, my experience has been that it almost feels like I'm just kind of like gasping for breath, looking for something to feel positive about because everything is just so discouraging. We need hope. And so I'm glad one of the, one of the great things about the job I have been given is to be thinking about this book of the Bible, Matthew, right now, where at the very center, Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is at hand. And this is fundamentally a message of hope. Jesus is saying, look, God is doing something new. He is going to be establishing a community where there is harmony, where there is justice and love. He is going to be making a way back to him through forgiveness. Through this, this new kingdom, there is going to be an end to suffering and evil and all that causes despair. And I am here to bring it about. And then in his death and in his resurrection, he began the process of that kingdom coming. And ever since, Christianity has had at its very heart hope. Christianity is not fundamentally about living better, although Jesus calls us to a better way. It's not fundamentally about having our best life now. As long as there is injustice and suffering in this world, we should be dissatisfied. Now, Christianity is fundamentally about hope. Not hope as we sometimes think of that language and like, I wish, but hope in terms of being confident. Confident that the way things feel right now is not an indication of how things will one day be. And it's that gap between how things feel right now and the way things one day will be that Jesus is addressing in our passage this morning. We've now, as it we're journeying through Matthew, we're now in chapter 13, where there is this series of eight parables. And at the very middle, you have four very brief parables that were just read. And they together are about hope. In them, Jesus is saying, don't let how things feel confuse you. Take hope. Because in my kingdom, the kingdom that I'm bringing, there is a hidden greatness. There is a hidden power. There is a hidden beauty. 
So let's consider that. There's a, there's a hidden greatness. Jesus begins, his first parable brings us to the garden. And we can imagine a farmer having all sorts of seeds to plant as the, as the season begins. And you have like corn, like kernels of corn. You might have peas. You might have all, you know, like grains of wheat. All sorts of different seeds. And then the very smallest and tiniest of the seeds that you would plant in a garden would be the mustard seed. If you can imagine a period on a printed page, that's essentially what a mustard seed looks like, this little black dot. Easiest one to overlook, to lose, to have fall through your fingers. If you look at this tiny thing, your assumption would be that if it has any plant at all, it's going to be like grass or maybe a tiny flower. And yet if you plant this trivial-looking seed, it will grow. And over time, this tiny dot goes to five feet, six feet, seven feet, up to ten feet, so large, in fact, that birds can sometimes put their nests in the branches of a mustard plant. There is no way, if you just looked at this dot, that you would have any inclination of what it can become. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven does not is not actually how it appears. It will come in weakness. It will come feeling trivial at times. We're in an age, sometimes we're told, of pluralism. That is, where we are side by side with many people of many deeply held different beliefs. Different beliefs about God, about spirituality, about the afterlife. And, and for many of us, that, that's not just this hypothetical age. We have good friends, people that we admire, who think very differently than we do. And that reality can make our faith feel fragile, can't it? I mean, do you ever wonder, hey, is, do I only believe this because I grew up with Christianity? What would happen if I grew up in another home? Who am I to say I am right and they're wrong? It feels weak. And when you add to that the fact that the, well, the gospel itself doesn't feel impressive. Have you ever had this experience when you're trying to tell someone who doesn't know much about Christianity and you try to explain it and you find yourself feeling like very weak in trying to talk about how a Jewish peasant 2,000 years ago dying is the single most important event that's taken place? It, it doesn't feel impressive. There's no boom, exciting moment when you're just, it just, it feels small. And then when you think not only of the message of the kingdom, but if you think of the community of the kingdom, the, the, the church, it doesn't feel very impressive when we think of the different ways that honestly fellow Christians in the name of Christ can, can embarrass and shame us. Or even, even the very ordinary things that we do together when we come together wearing masks, singing songs, listening to someone speak for a while, and then having a small wafer and grape juice. And we're supposed to say, this is the great thing that we're doing. This is what we can take our hope in. It feels small. And Jesus is saying, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that this feels this way. That the kingdom of heaven, it's like a mustard seed. It comes with the appearance of small and weakness, but there is a hidden 
greatness, like a mustard seed that grows. If we wait and see the kingdom of heaven, something extraordinary takes place in and through it. And, and now with the perspective of history, we don't even have to, to just kind of hope that that's true. We, we can see examples of that. Just with me for a moment, think about the story of the church. So when Jesus ascends, the church best, there are a few hundred people who believe, <clears throat> excuse me, who believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. You could fit all of the Christians in the world in this building, even if you were socially distanced. That's how small it was. Meanwhile, they, they know that the state religion of Israel that everyone believes has rejected Jesus as a heretic and condemned this completely. And beyond that, way out in the open world of the Roman Empire, there are millions who believe in emperor worship. There are millions who believe in the Roman pantheon of Jupiter and all those gods. There are millions who believe Stoicism and other philosophies so much stronger than this little faith that you have. And yet, as the mustard seed is planted, there is growth. People leave that, that small gathering and start telling people about Jesus, even being willing to die for that. And, and as they do, as they start first speaking in Israel, and then they go out to Greece and to Rome, as they do, most people think it's ridiculous. Most people find Stoicism way more sensible, and they find the Roman pantheon way more impressive, and they find the Roman emperor way more relevant. But there are a few who hear it and are amazed. And over time, these little, tiny communities spring up in one place after another, place, communities that are weird to the rest of the world, but they are undeniably sincere and these communities continue on and begin to grow even as massive faiths like Stoicism fall away, as people stop believing in the Roman gods, as, as Roman emperor worship just falls down. So these, these communities continue to grow. And they grow even despite themselves. So, so church historian Mark Knoll will tell you that one of the things that should most impress you when you study the story of the church is just how many things the church does wrong and completely messes up. Things that should absolutely shipwreck it, whether you're talking about the deep division and schism, whether you're talking about the terrible corruption we see in leadership, whether you're talking about things like through crusades, again and again, they get things wrong, and yet somehow this plant, this mustard seed, continues to grow until today. It is, by one recent survey, 2.4 billion people in the world claim to be Christians. 2.4 billion. A mustard seed of a few hundred and 2.4 billion. Can you imagine the difference between those things? And it's not just one kind of ethnicity. This is the only truly global religion. You have one-fourth of that population in Latin America, one-fourth of that population in Africa, one-fourth of that population in Europe, and the rest a combination of Asia and North America. It has spread everywhere. And, and and the reason for this is not because you had some just fantastic leadership. You have as many examples of terrible leaders as good ones. It's not because you have some easily marketable message. Christianity is hard to soundbite. It's not because of human ingenuity. It's because there is a power that is deeper and realer than anything that we understand. Jesus says that's what's going on. This mustard seed is a 
mustard plant, there is a hidden greatness to the kingdom. And therefore, you can hope. And he says, what's more, there is a hidden power to the kingdom. And, and we move from the garden to the kitchen and making bread. And in that day, the way you would make bread is different. From, you wouldn't have like a little Fleischmann's yeast packet that you would throw in. You would instead have starter dough, some previously fermented dough from a previous batch that you would hold on. And so then you would kind of combine the flour, combine the water, have this big thing of dough, and you take this little lump of dough, and you just kind of stick it in there. And just imagine what this would feel like. You just knead it in, knead it in, and and now it looks exactly like it did before. And that little lump has disappeared. You see no, there, it's not like there was suddenly an explosion and boom, something's happened. It's, it looks the same as before. And yet in a hidden, slow, but real way, what has taken place is now going to change everything. And Jesus says, that's how my kingdom works. There is a hidden power at work that you will not necessarily see, but over time, in subtle ways, in invisible ways, it will change things. We're in a time, I think, where we feel, we so deeply feel the need for things to change. Because just oh, the flaws are everywhere. We see, we see injustice, we see chaos, we see corruption, we see disorder, and we ache, and we want to do something, don't we? And what I've noticed is as we keep on coming across all of this awfulness, anger, anger seems to be the primary emotion that people know how to go to. So when COVID starts coming, there's anger about how people are either being too strict or not handling it well. When there is this, the, the racial injustice, there's anger not just in protests, but there's riots. When this week people feel like things weren't going right in D.C., you have anger as people storm the Capitol, and then you have everyone angry at them. And I'm not trying to say they're all on the same level. There are some that is deeply justified, and there's some that's deeply problematic. My point is that again and again, it seems like the place that we know to go is anger. And I think the reason is because anger feels like something is going to happen if we get angry. When you get angry, you're, you're going to do something big, something decisive, something loud, something violent. With, when you're filling yourself with fury, you are confident that something is about to happen through you because that's how anger feels. feels like you're going to make a difference. Now contrast the way that we feel with anger and what we want to do with the way of the kingdom that Jesus calls us to. Jesus says, Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies. Pray for those who attack you. If someone tries to take your shirt, give them your coat as well. When you give to others, do it secretly so people won't notice. When you pray, do it in private. Treat others as you would be treated and seek to tell everyone about me. Now let me tell you, when we live that out, as we try to actually live that out, there is nothing about that in the moment that feels powerful. We want change. Jesus says, pray for people, love them, and tell them about me. And we're like, could I be angry instead? And, and don't misunderstand me. There is a place for godly anger. There is a place for protests. There is a place for seeking to put the right people in power. But, but Jesus is telling us that there is, there is something bigger. There is something deeper 
that happens through the way of the kingdom. Consider the difference it can make when a community of people from very different backgrounds who vote very differently come together and seek to love each other and listen to each other and respect each other because of the bond they have in Christ Jesus. Think of the difference it makes for children to grow up in an environment like that. Don't you think that changes things? Or, or consider the difference it makes when one or two or three people in the same workplace seek to demonstrate a Christ-like integrity and respect for others and kindness, how it can change the whole workplace in those moments. Or, or consider the difference it makes when someone who is gripped by the preciousness of life decides to provide foster care for kids who seem otherwise unwanted. Or the difference it can make when one person hears the gospel and comes to believe in it. Now, each of those on their own might seem small or weak or inconsequential, but when one happens after another, when it happens together, like yeast, it changes everything. Now, that might seem overly idealistic, maybe even naive, except for the fact that it's already been happening. Something I've been struck by, I've been reading some historians recently, most of whom aren't Christians, who have talked about how much of a difference there is between now and the time of the Roman Empire. I don't think we recognize just how vast a chasm culturally there is between now and the way things were. When Caesar was at war, he killed one million Gauls and he imprisoned another million more, sorry, enslaved another million more, and no one thought that was problematic. They just thought he was pretty impressive by that. If you were a person of power, if you were a, a patriarch, if you were someone who's strong, you could have your way with women and they couldn't say anything about it and that was just okay. In that day, if someone was poor or weak, you had no responsibility to care for them. It's tough luck. The strong get the good things, the poor get nothing. And that was how things were. Humility and forgiveness and gentleness, that's weakness. How have things changed between then and now? Here's what historians agree on. Again, people who aren't Christians, they say, well, it's, if we're honest, it's because of Christianity. It's in Christianity that suddenly for the first time you see the individual being of such worth before God and humans that they should be treated with dignity, whether they're slave or free, whether they're male or female, they should be given rights and they should be treated as valuable. It's because of Christianity that forgiveness and gentleness and humility is now considered strong rather than weak. It's even because of Christianity that the world is considered ordered and so scientific study is now considered sensible. And how did that change happen? It wasn't some major promotional campaign. Let's shift the way the culture is. It was different believers seeking to care for the poor. And, and, and provide small hospitals. It was different believers seeking to show dignity to the slaves and seeking their freedom little by little over time, sometimes even in spite of the church's failings, like leaven working through the dough, things were changed. And if we want to see change, yes, there are absolutely appropriate times for us to try to vote differently, for us to try to protest 
But Jesus is saying, look, the kingdom of heaven is where the answers are. The kingdom of heaven is where the power is. Seek my kingdom. Seek to fulfill my calling as you love the world around you, as you tell them about me, because like leaven, it changes everything. There's a hidden power to the kingdom. Let me just pause before moving forward and say that that while we have been applying these things to how the kingdom works at large, the same truth holds for how it applies to us individually. Right now, there might be things that you feel are just deeply threatening. Maybe something is going on with one of your kids that's really hard, or maybe you're in the midst of a really broken relationship, or you're, you're facing financial hurdles. And as you're facing these hard things, our temptation is going to be to look towards things that feel strong, whether it's just our own way of fixing it, or whether it's a bank account, or whether it's something else. And, and just to feel like, well, Christianity will leave by the side, because what could it possibly do? But like a a mustard seed, you need to understand that though it feels very inconsequential, if you place your hope in it, it more and more you will realize that God is the one who is faithful. He is the one who will take care of you. There is a strength there. Sometimes I think when we are at an individual level frustrated with ourselves, we want not just to see the world change, but we want to see us change, the way that we deal with that is by anger. We get angry at ourselves. Why am I doing this? Why am I acting this way? And I think we're doing that because we feel if I get angry at myself, I can change it. And you can't. But this this quiet, subtle process of listening to God and His Word, of turning to Him in prayer, of, of gathering with believers, over time there is something deeply powerful and transforming about There is a hidden greatness and power of the kingdom, and that's why we can hope. But but to understand hope, there's one more truth that these parables have for us that that I want us to hear this morning, and that is not only is there a hidden greatness and not only is there a hidden power, but there is a hidden beauty. And in these last two parables, I'm going to deal with together, and I want to suggest from the outset that I actually think that we read these two parables wrong. So the first parable you have, uh, once again, we're in a field. It looks like someone is trying to sell their land. They're getting some landscaping done. So a servant is doing some landscaping work. And he puts the shovel down and he hears a clink and he digs it a little bit and there's a jar there. Probably a jar that's been there for generations. And he, he opens the lid of the jar and he realizes there is a small fortune there. Like enough to make him rich for the rest of his life. And so he quick puts it and he buries it and he, and he goes to the person selling. He's like, how much do you want for this land? And it doesn't matter how much the person says. He's like, okay, I'm doing it. And the next week he se- spends raising the funds. He sells everything and he doesn't care. In fact, every sale that he has, he feels better about things because he's getting closer to that moment where he can get that land. And he knows when he gets that land, he will be rich. It's joyful for him. Then we move to, to another person. Now this is a merchant who's a collector. A collector that I have to be honest I don't relate to because he seems really excited about pearls and I I don't get it but for him he has been spending his life pursuing the perfect pearl. The perfectly round, the perfectly white, the perfectly sized pearl. He he trades, he, he does all of these things but all this time he's looking for one thing and then one day he comes to this small village and he comes to one trader and he sees it. What he's been looking for all of his days. And with joy, he just, he gets rid of everything else. He gets rid of all of his stock so that he can buy this perfect pearl and achieve his lifelong goal. 
Now, here's why I think we actually get these two parables wrong. I think when we hear these parables, we start thinking that these parables are about us. That we start going, man, I need to be like that. I, I need to be willing to sell everything. In fact, I should be joyful about losing everything. And because I'm not, that clearly shows I don't have enough faith. And, and there is a place for recognizing that there is an expense, there's a cost to the call of following Jesus, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. He doesn't say the people are like, he says the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl. The kingdom of heaven is like this treasure. Jesus is saying, if you could see what I see, you would realize that what I am offering you is of enormous worth. If you could see what I see, then you would recognize that what you have here before you is perfection. There is a hidden beauty, he is saying, to the kingdom that I'm bringing. Scripture tells us that one day this kingdom will come in full. One day Jesus will return. And on that day, there will be perfect harmony between us. No longer misunderstanding or anger. There will be harmony between us. Harmony between us and creation. And it says we will see God face to face. We will know his love and rejoice in his presence. And it says he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And there will be no more suffering, no more evil, no more death. And in that moment, we will rejoice. And in that moment, we will recognize that God has made us far more wealthy than we could possibly imagine. In that day, we will recognize that what our souls have been looking for all along, what we've been searching for all along, sometimes not even knowing we're searching, we have found in that moment. And the reason Jesus tells us this parable right now is because he knows we don't see that right now. We can't see that with our eyes, and even at times we can't see that reality with our hearts, but he can. We are, are like the people who are still digging in the dirt and we haven't actually clinked on, or maybe we've heard the jar, but we haven't opened it yet. We're, we're the person who's come to the village, but we don't yet know we're about to see this perfect pearl, but Jesus does. And he says, one day when you see what I see right now, you will know with all of your heart that it will have been all worth it. All of the waiting, all of the seeking to love even when it is exhausting, all of the holding on to trust even when it feels costly in that moment, you won't regret any of it. You will rejoice because it will be so beautiful. And this, this is why we hope. This is why we can hope, even in January of, of COVID tide, when the capital still has all these broken windows and our nation feels like it's falling apart. We can hope not because things look good right now. If, if we were able to hope in right now, that's not hope. That's just happiness. Hope is because we can see that the way things feel right now are not the way things will be. Like a mustard seed that will grow, like, like leaven that stays hidden but is doing something significant, like a treasure that we haven't yet 
viewed, there is something hidden that one day will be glorious, a hidden greatness, a hidden power, a hidden beauty, and we know that because Jesus tells us it will be. And so we hope. And I'd like us even now to seek to turn our hearts, to lean into that hope as, turn, as we turn to God in prayer. Maybe it is a time for you to ask for God to open the eyes of your heart to trust, or maybe it is to acknowledge the way you've been distracted in confession. But would you join with me just in responding and turning to this God who gives us these gifts in prayer, and then I'll lead us in a couple minutes' time in prayer.